Hello and welcome to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Holiday Season to all of our listeners. I'm Michael and that's Josh and this is our final episode for the year 2023. It's been a roller coaster of a year with practice changing studies in every corner of the globe and we have been so privileged to bring it to you via the medium of podcast, this podcast in particular. Josh, how are you going today? I'm doing well. I'm very excited for the Christmas period to be underway and I'm looking forward to some time off in the new year as I guess you are as well. Absolutely. Now, Josh, Prior to this episode, as you know, we receive literally hundreds of emails and letters, and they all say the same thing. Dear Oncology for the so-called inquisitive mind, I love your show, but I don't appreciate all of those pesky details, p-values, and hazard ratios. Please, oh please, will you make it so that someone with my very short attention span can pay attention? Yours sincerely, an orthopedic surgeon. Well, Josh, we aim to please on Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, and so for our last episode, we're going to do something different. We are going to cover four studies from the kind of recent World Lung Conference, and for every study, there is going to be a five-minute timer. And if we talk for more than five minutes per study, the person who is keeping time is going to rudely interrupt with an increasingly obnoxious sound effect. So... Hold on to your butts because this is going to be a roller coaster, much like the year 2023 has been. Josh, are you ready for the timer to start? I was born ready and my middle name is Danger. Let's roll. All right. And on your marks, get set, go. So this is a study looking at refractory extensive stage small cell lung cancer with the drug in infinitumab duroxacan or IDXD. As you might be aware, it's an antibody drug conjugate, and this is a subgroup analysis of the phase one slash two study. Looking at the background, they know, well, they, not me, but they knew that B7H3 is a receptor which is overexpressed in a wide range of cancer subtypes, and it's associated with disease progression and poor survival. Uh, IDXD is a directed monoclonal antibody and it has a topoisomerase 1 payload. It has a tetrapeptide-based cleavable linker that covalently bonds to two other components. I'm aware of the time already, Michael. So the study was really, it's an early phase. It's a phase one slash phase two. So it's a, it's a dose escalation and also looking for anti-tumor activity. The doses were at 6.4 milligrams per kilogram and there was 21 patients available for efficacy. The patient demographics are 22 overall were treated in this sub-analysis and the range of treatment was from 3.2 milligram per kilogram to 16 milligrams per kilogram. Most were in their early 60s, most had at least two prior systemic therapies and some had up to seven prior lines. All had received prior platinum and prior checkpoint inhibitor in 81%, predominantly USA and Japan. Looking at anti-tumor activity, it was quite a nice waterfall plot. All but one showed some element of disease response with an objective response rate of 52%, complete response of 4.8%, and partial response of 47%. Medium time to response was 1.2 months, and median follow-up was 11 months. Median duration of response was 5.9 months and 
that's quite good. And median progression-free survival was 5.6 months. Mind you, this is preliminary. And overall survival being 12.2 months, which was not leached. Pretty impressive for such a heavily pre-treated cohort. Safety summary was okay. And from adverse effects, they had a number of interstitial lung disease and grade three or more was seen in eight patients. But what they found was ILD in one case, grade two pneumonitis in another case, cardiac failure, pulmonary embolism, and COVID-19 rounded out the three other cases that caused drug discontinuation, common side effects, nausea, fatigue, anemia, and vomiting. And so this is an exciting study. Even more interesting is that when they looked at expression of this receptor type, which is the B7H3, they did not find a correlation between level of uh, response and amount of receptor expression in the trial. But for such a heavily pretreated cohort of patients, this is a very promising drug and promising treatment but of course you know there's ongoing issues including we need better biomarkers to figure out who this is going to look out for we need better other things as well with respect to sort of response and resistance that does come up michael you're looking like it's almost five minutes how did i go for such a loquacious man josh i'm very impressed at how uh direct you were with that you had one minute 40 seconds to spare Oh, I had more. Can I can I talk a little bit more? Because I have other things to talk about. If we let you off the leash, you're going to be talking for another half an hour. At least uh, we'll go for now. So ADCs, from a historical perspective, first thought about in 1910 with Paul Elric. He thought about this magic bullet that would just kill all these cancers. Moving to now, there's over 100 to 150. ADCs in research, depending on which sort of literature base you look at. The last year you've had trastuzumab, duroxacan, FDA approved. You've had patritumab, duroxacan for third generation TKI. I'm assuming that's an EGFR mutated non-small cell lung cancer. And CMET overexpression, you've got telesotuzumab, vedotin. So like this is coming to the fore and this is going to be this, honestly, in 10 years' time, probably the standard of care for many of our treatments who don't have better receptors or targets that we have. But there are issues including toxicities like interstitial lung disease. How do we sort of optimise efficacy but manage you know, harm to the patients? Why are these drugs only still working for six months? What do we need to do to make them work for many, many years? And stop. And Josh will be there every step of the way with with his pom-poms because, as we've said on this show many times, they truly are the medical love of his life. You're so true, Michael. If I could marry one drug, it would be a very effective antibody drug conjugate. (laughs) (laughs) And that's a mental image I never want to think of again. Uh, But I agree with you. This This is a very interesting trial, obviously early phase, but treatment duration of little under four months in a heavily pretreated small cell cohort is obviously very promising. We've said it before, patients with refractory small cell lung cancer are very difficult to make studies for. And so I think that this is definitely an area of need and anything that at least improves the current standard of care, which is usually chemotherapy with um, irinotecan or the uh, CAV regimen, there's certainly a lot of improvement that could be done there. All right. I'm aware of the time, Mikey. Why don't we uh, show us your huge intellect and let's let's jump jump around. All right. Let's go. 
just tell me when when uh, the starting gun is fired. Now. All right, so my study is the Herthena Lung 01 study, and the background to this is that patients with EGFR-mutated advanced non-small cell lung cancer are generally treated these days with only one line of an EGFR TKI. In the olden days, obviously, you could have up to two lines with a second generation, a lotinib or jafitinib, followed by osimertinib if they had a T790M mutation. However, after progressive disease on osimertinib, we'll just say osimertinib because that's the standard of care these days, patients are usually treated with platinum-based chemotherapy with or without an immune checkpoint inhibitor. We've mentioned this before. The only real evidence in this area that demonstrates some benefit is a sub-subgroup of the Empower 150 study of atezolizumab, bevacizumab, carboplatin, and paclitaxel. However, these salvage therapies have very limited efficacy. A recent retrospective and real-world analysis of salvage therapies in patients with this subset of cancer demonstrated a median progression-free survival in the range of 2.8 to 3.3 months. The drug under study here is patritumab deruxtecan, so we're staying in the deruxtecan field here, and it is a investigational HER3-directed antibody drug conjugate, so again, we're sticking with the ADCs, comprising a human immunoglobulin G1 monoclonal antibody to HER3, which is the uh, patritumab, covalently linked to a topoisomerase 1 inhibitor payload, that's the deruxtecan, via a tetrapeptide-based cleavable linker. Does that make sense? Doesn't to me either. The Herthena lung study design was a multi-center, open-label, randomized, two-arm, phase two study of uh, HER3-DXD once every three weeks in previously treated patients with locally advanced or metastatic non-small cell lung cancer with either an exon 19 deletion or an L858R translocation. There were three arms, each with different doses. For the interests of time, because we are quite literally on the clock, I'm going to skip over that little detail. During the study, it's important to note the protocol was amended so that previous treatment with osimertinib was compulsory. So patients previously had been able to get away with treatment with elotinib or jafitinib, but now they needed to be treated with osimertinib. They also allowed entry for patients with clinically inactive or treated brain metastases who were asymptomatic. The primary endpoint was confirmed overall response rate, and the secondary endpoints included duration of response, progression-free survival, disease control rate, time to response, and basically a whole other bunch of stuff, which again, we'll skip over. The demographics were largely well-balanced with a median age of 64. The median number of previous lines of systemic therapy, this stuck out to me, Josh, ranged between 1 and 11. Again, as we usually say, I don't think either of us can think of 11 treatments for non-small cell lung cancer. And now, careening like an out-of-control locomotive, we come to the results. The confirmed overall response rate by central review was 29.8%. The median duration of response was 6.4 months, with 43% of patients having a duration of response greater than or equal to 6 months. The median progression-free survival was 5.5 months, which, if you will remember, is a little under twice as good as that found in this retrospective review of platinum-based chemotherapy. Median overall survival was 11.9 months, and anti-tumor activity was similar in patients with and without a history of CNS metastases. 
In terms of safety, the treatment-related adverse events of grade 3 or grade 4 severity occurred in 649 and 28.9% of patients respectively. The most common grade 3 or higher treatment-related events were hematological toxicities, thrombocytopenia, neutropenia, and the median time to first onset of grade 3 events was 8 days for thrombocytopenia and 21 days for neutropenia. And there we have it. I don't think there were too many events of things like pneumonitis or other things that we're worried about for deruxtecan-containing therapies, but much like your study, Josh, a novel agent that shows promise in a subgroup of patients with very few effective treatment options. How did I do? Four minutes and 37 seconds. Oh, time to perfection. You are. You are perfect, Michael. (laughs) Michael. Uh, So really interesting study. And again, you know, this is, again, a heavily pre-treated resistant population up to 11 cycle uh, up to 11 prior treatment so incredible you're getting objective response rates of almost 30 percent and are they planning a phase three uh, i think they are i'm not sure if it's actually running at the moment because at my center we do have a herthena study running and yeah, okay. so they might already be laying the groundwork or even started recruitment for this something to keep an eye on when you've got these heavily pre-treated EGFR mutant patients. Yeah, I mean, a great option. This is one of the things I struggled as a junior registrar is always, what do you do next? You know, we didn't grow up in the time of just give another chemo and you get another three, four months out of it. We're in it so complex, so it's incredible. And you've always got to look for clinical trials and that's something that, very similar to you, When I was much more junior, I really didn't think of clinical trials. I was always sort of staying in the standard of care lane, but you've really got to expand your mind. Well, speaking of clinical trials, I might move to my next one. (laughs) Sounds good. I think this has got to be a record for amount of information given in one of these episodes. That's it. Pause and rewind. Uh, So mine is the ETER701 study, which is Ben Ben Melstabat with anlotinib plus chemotherapy as first-line therapy for extensive-stage small-cell lung cancer. It's a randomized, double-blind, phase 3 study. As we know, background, small-cell lung cancer sucks. There's limited efficacy due to issues like micro-environment immunosuppression, angiogenesis, and vascularization, and they feel this is why immunotherapy doesn't work that well. And their thought process is about giving Ben melstabat which is a novel developed pdl1 inhibitor with anlotinib an anti-vascular agent like a vegf inhibitor plus standard chemotherapy to see if it improves overall survival and adverse events now anlotinib i think has other effects as well i think it's actually tki so hold on to your horses as we correct that at the end the study was three arms <laughs> one was uh, the Ben Mel- with plus anlotinib plus etoposide and carboplatin, arm A. Arm B is placebo and anlotinib plus etoposide and carboplatin. And arm C was placebo, placebo, etoposide, carboplatin. I'm going to label them arm A, arm B, arm C. Primary endpoints, overall survival and progression-free survival because this is a heinous cancer to treat. And secondary endpoints is everything else you love from medical oncology trials patient disposition 730 patients were randomized about 250 per arm 
baseline characteristics mostly in their 60s, 25% had brain mets in each arm, in each arm and liver mets was about 30% in each arm, give or take. 65% of each arm had not smoked, never smoked. Looking at the primary endpoint in the progression-free survival for the intention to treat population, showed a hazard ratio of 0.32 with a median progression-free survival of 6.93 in months in arm A versus 4.21 in arm C, arm C being with no intervention, just the chemotherapy, with a p-value of less than 0.0001. Six-month PFS was 59% versus 16%, and 12-month PFS was 27% versus 2.29%. The primary endpoints, which I've already gone through, the progression-free survival, Quite interesting. Looking at the overall survival in that intention to treat population, median overall survival of 19.3 months versus 11.8 months, arm A versus arm C, hazard ratio of 0.61, so about 40%, give or take, better than the standard of care without immunotherapy, which would have been a tizolizumab, and a statistically significant p-value. 24-month overall survival was 41% in the intervention arm versus 24% in arm C. And Michael, I don't know about you, but two-year overall survival, 41% for small cell lung cancer seems really quite high. But if we move, yeah, moving on, uh, I've got limited time, I'm aware of that. Looking at the subgroup analysis for overall survival and progression-free survival, it showed that most most uh, sub-analyses actually benefited the intervention arm. What they found is that the brain metastases crossed that confidence interval, but they were smaller numbers, so about 51 out of the 250 arm. And current smokers also crossed that interval line. But we, we know historically both brain mets and smokers do worse, especially in this cohort of patients. Progression-free survival somewhat had a similar theme. Looking at tumor response, partial response was 80% in arm A and 66% in arm B. Stable disease was 9% in arm A and 20% in arm B. So overall, you saw about objective confirmed response of 81.3 versus 66.8%. Adverse events, quite high. So greater than 393% in arm A versus 87% in arm C with immune-related adverse events in 40% of arm A versus 19% of the control arm, which did not get immunotherapy. Uh, And discontinuation in 8.5% in arm A and 2.8% in arm C. There's a huge number of side effects. We've got the neutropenia, the platelets, the white cell counts, the anemia, the nausea, the hypertension as kind of the top leading any grade AEs in the intervention arm. So as a summary, Michael, I think I have one minute to spare. Arm A was better than arm C. It had a good safety profile. Look, it's potentially a, you know, a new standard of care. I don't know the the, the issues when you looked at the discussion for this case, and that's why I'm going to go. Oh, I'm sorry, Josh. That's your time. <laughs> You're so happy. Can I say one more thing? <laughs> yeah, you can. You could say honestly, it's our show. You can say as much as you like. But now I get to use the uh, obnoxious sound effect, which is which I'm I so happy I started at six about. minutes. Oh yeah, that's right. It's, okay, that's fine. No, no, I'll finish. And, and this just in, ladies and gentlemen, Josh also can't do simple maths. <laughs> Amazing. Let's move on, Michael. You're up. Do you want to summarize your uh, article first? 
they just asked some questions about the study accrual, the fact that can you actually correlate what they found here in a wider population? I mean, most of the studies we do are predominantly Caucasian, so how do we extrapolate that to any other subpopulation? I don't know. They did say they had really high fast recruitment rate, and they also said that they seem to not have a high sort of exclusion rate in their recruitment process. So I wonder the recruitment if that was the same as every other trial just some questions yeah i i guess the the concern would be exactly sort of as you said we never really talk about applicability when patient populations in these studies are majority caucasian and i think that's just an important thing to to say because it needs to be said um it does michael it needs to be said so well done and I guess <laughs> Josh is Josh is giving me a, a sassy look here. Um, but the the other thing as well, to to your point, this concern about rapid recruitment and poor exclusion criteria, yes, that does interfere with the scientific method, but it is also the main calling card for a lot of these quote unquote real world studies that aren't as selective as your standard uh, clinical trial. So I guess that sort of and and i guess the other thing is these sorts of things are uh usually done in the context of results being unremarkable or not clinically or statistically significant but that those are some very impressive uh survival curves i agree i agree so i think that this is certainly a an area a combination i i'm going to try and say it now ben melstabart with anlotinib plus chemotherapy. How did I go? Your five minutes is up. Damn it. <laughs> um, but I think this is a combination to definitely keep an eye on. All I right, we've got, we've got one more study, Josh. Let's rock it through it. And maybe you'll get to use the sound effect on me. Who knows? Bah. <laughs> That's pretty much it. All right, let me know when, I, when you're ready to go. The suspense is real and go. All right. So our last study here, we're we're pivoting back to non-small cell lung cancer, is the Intellect study. And this is a study of anaplastic lymphoma kinase or ALK rearrangement positive non-small cell lung cancer. These are present in 3 to 7% of non-small cell lung cancer cases. And this study, the Intellect study, is examining a new agent, and I'm going to try and pronounce this one right, Iruplinalkib, Iruplinalkib, there's way too many L's and N's and P's in that. But anyway, I'm just going to call it Iru because otherwise I'm going to use my five minutes trying to pronounce it, which is an anaplastic lymphoma kinase slash C-ROS oncogene 1, which or ROS1 tyrosine kinase inhibitor. So in novel... Uh, ALK TKIs, and we're saying things like electinib, lorlatinib, the objective response rate, or ORR, was 33 to 56%, and the median progression-free survival ranged from 6 to 17 months in crizotinib-resistant disease. Now, this is a big part of this study that I guess uh, is the main question, because they're looking at crizotinib-resistant disease, but of course, crizotinib is no longer the standard of care for ALK mutant non-small cell lung cancer. It is used in ROS1 mutant lung cancer, but I've never seen someone with both an ALK and a ROS1 mutation. I don't even know if that's even possible. So that's something to keep in the back of your mind. 
So the intellect study was a single arm phase two study that was examining the efficacy and safety of IRU. Just going to leave it at that for ALK positive chrysotomy resistant advanced non-small cell lung cancer patients. Eligibility criteria were fairly standard. They have to be greater than 18 years old with ALK positive advanced non-small cell lung cancer with an expected survival time of greater than 12 weeks, an ECOG performance status of 0 to 2, progression after chrysotomy for greater than 12 weeks, one measurable extracranial lesion or more, adequate organ function with all of the uh, number requirements that are usual there. Again, patients with asymptomatic brain metastases or those with symptomatic brain metastases who were treated and stable for more than four weeks were allowed. Very important because ALK mutant non-small cell lung cancer is notorious for making a beeline to the CNS. Any surgery or radiotherapy, with the exception of palliative radiotherapy, had to be completed more than four weeks before the initiation of IRUP treatment. Um, palliative radiotherapy must be completed greater than 48 hours before treatment initiation. For this study, they enrolled 146 ALK-positive patients. 77, or 52.7% of the patients, were female. 42% of patients had an ECOG performance status of zero. And 27, 28.8% of patients had an ECOG performance status of zero. And 67% of patients had a performance status of one. Brain mets were found in 62% of patients, of which 22% had received brain radiotherapy, and 47% of patients had measurable intracranial lesions. 38.4% of patients had had prior chemotherapy, which is interesting. Now, very quickly pivoting to the results, the data cutoff was on November the 30th of 2021, and 57 patients, or 39%, were still on IRUP treatment, and the median follow-up time was 18.2 months. The overall response rate was 69%, The disease control rate was 96.6%. Systemic overall response rate of patients with and without brain metastases was 63% and 80% respectively. The median duration of response was 13.2 months. The median progression-free survival was 14.5 months. And unfortunately, overall survival data is still immature with 72.6% of patients censored from the study. The 12-month survival rate was estimated to be 85.2 months, and the 24-month survival rate was 57.9 months. In terms of safety, the most common treatment-related adverse events were increased liver function tests, increased phosphokinase, hypercholesterolemia, hypertriglyceridemia, hypertension, and grade 3 three to four treatment-related adverse events occurred in 45% of patients. So I guess that's that's it for me. It's very short, Josh, this last one. So no sound effect for you, unfortunately. But the main question I have with this study, obviously more tyrosine kinase inhibitors is always better. Osimertinib was such a sea change in the EGFR mutant. <laughs> Hey, Michael, that's five minutes. Oh, great. So uh, there's the buzzer because you're still talking and you haven't still actually concluded. So I, All right. I win. It's one each, one each. All right. We'll call it a draw. Um, <laughs> but the main thing is to summarize here very quickly, tyrosine kinase inhibitors, the more we have, the better it is for patients because there is such a massive drop-off between treatment with TKI and treatment with chemo or immunotherapy. And so more agents are required in this area. And scene.
All right. So, Michael, uh, just so clarification of five minutes and 40 seconds. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying that, Josh. No worries. But that was wonderful world tour of the world one conference a little late but no less important as every other cancer subtype we hope you loved what we did and we cannot wait to bring you so much more next year next year in 2024 so on behalf of josh and myself we hope everyone has a very happy and safe new year and we will see you in 2024 and michael i will see you in melbourne Yes, we'll be finally back in the same city. No more Zoom-esque recordings. It's going to be great. All right. See you. See you soon. Thank you for listening to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. You'll find previous episodes on our website, along with weekly posts, resources, and links to our Twitter and LinkedIn pages. Check it out at inquisitiveonk.com. That's inquisitiveonk.com.